Our gracious God, we thank you for the scriptures given to us by your Holy Spirit for our learning. Fill our hearts with joy, we pray, as we turn to them now. May your Holy Spirit take the written word and my words and make them words of truth and life so that we might rejoice in you all the more. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul, thank you indeed for inviting me to not only come to the conference but to preach today. Um, It's always a great um, privilege to share another's pulpit and uh, thank you for that opportunity. To be able to um, finish the series on the Psalms, Songs of Experience, is a double joy. I don't know about you, but I think the Psalms are an extraordinary gift to us from God. Um, Found in the centre of the Bible, of course, those 150 songs of the ancient church, of the people of Israel, taken up by Christians down through the ages. We see that, don't we, even in the New Testament, um, where our Lord and many of the New Testament writers quote freely from the Psalms to to illustrate who Christ was as he came amongst us, um, reminds us that they have been given to us for our learning. For myself, there have been many times when I've been a little bit depressed or a little bit down or a little bit jaded or a little bit tired and I've found certainly that if I can get 40 minutes alone away from a phone and reading the Psalms, they've been a great tonic to me. They speak to us about God and they mirror our own experience. You have seen in the last four or five or six weeks psalms with different kinds of focus. But you'll remember, of course, how the psalms ask questions of God. Why do the wicked prosper? Psalm 73. Is it really worthwhile hanging in there with God? and seeking to live a righteous life. The Psalms uh, seek for pardon, Psalms 32 and 51, where David, after those horrendous sins with Bathsheba and Uriah, crying out for God for a cleansed conscience and a restored spirit. Or the cries for help, Psalm 42, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Or those psalms seeking deliverance. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or those psalms that are full of thanksgiving to God. Or of praise and standing in awe of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic your name is in all the earth. Or the heavens declare the glory of the Lord as David looks to the heavens. Unaided by telescopes and yet his mind boggles at how Great the living God is. Well, we're looking at Psalm 65 as we conclude the series that you've been looking at. It seems as we read the psalm, certainly the last few verses, I forget what page it was, 580, is it right? Page 580. That there's been a bumper harvest and the farmers are rejoicing 
and David leads the people in joyful praise. For example, verses 9 onwards, you care for the land and you water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. Derek Kidner in the Tyndale Commentary says, Here is a psalm where we almost feel the splash of showers and the the sense of springing growth around about us. It's almost as if they've got their gums boots on, in other words, um, as they just enjoy the harvest. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and they sing. You get the picture, don't you? It's been a bumper year. And as somebody said, such is the joy that it is as if the creation has turned out in its very best to praise God. Psalms 96 and Psalm 98, don't they? They remind us that the hills clap for joy, the rivers sing with gladness. There's a sense that the inanimate creation does what we ought to do. It does instinctively we ought to do uh, consciously. And certainly that's one of the reasons I'm sure David's writing this psalm. He's saying to the people, look at the creation around about. They're turning out to praise God. How much more should we who are the beneficiaries of a bumper harvest and of a joyful year? Friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you do that? Or, like me, you're tempted to take it all for granted. You bring the groceries home from Tesco or wherever you shop, you put them out on the kitchen table, does your heart leap? for joy that God has done it again for you. That the daily bread that we ought to pray for has become weekly provisions or even monthly luxuries that God gives to us in this land and indeed in our land. As uh, Bob drove us from the airport at Manchester through Snake Pass, Snake, yes, in our country we call Snake Gully, <laughs> Snake Pass. As we were driving along, we, Kristen and I were just overwhelmed by the streams as they flowed down the hills and you could see the water flowing down. We went to Lake Derwent um, when I saw it, but we were not far away. I'd seen the documentary how the dam busters had perfected those bombs there and we went there and once again you see the streams of water flowing into the dams. Just extraordinary. That's what the psalm celebrates, how God has drenched the land. Do you thank God? When we get crops, I'm in a rural diocese and often you hear the farmers sort of almost fulsome in their praise but often saying, yeah, it was a good year. But Fred, over the other side of town, he got two and a half tonnes an acre, I only got two and a quarter tonnes. <laughs> I don't know whether your farmers or even you are sort of, you know, we're reluctant with our praise. We can always think of it might have been a little bit better. But friends, when God provides our needs, how we ought to be praising him and thanking him for the bounty. He is the primary producer. Were it not for him, we would have nothing. 
certainly where I'm living in New South Wales and northern and southern Queensland and down into Victoria, all down the east coast, we're experiencing the worst drought in 100 years in Australia. And certainly in this last year, in this last couple of months actually, it's really bitten again. It looked like we were coming out of it, but the rains didn't come in September. And many of the farmers are not enjoying the crops, which were looking so good in August. Some are harvesting, but many are not. Some are having to sell their sheep, which a matter of six weeks ago were bringing $50, $100 per head and now down where my cousin farms down near Wagga in central New South Wales, they're having to give the sheep away because there's just not the feed. How does this psalm speak to those people? It's relatively easy to praise God when there's a bumper harvest or when things are going well or when we're healthy. But how do we go when the harvest isn't coming in? Or there is sickness in our lives. Or there's disappointment that the business is going belly up. Or there's been terrific disappointment in our family. And certainly looking at you, many of you are my age, and one of the great sadnesses when you get to 60 is the possibility of children who perhaps even sat in this church worshipping the Lord no longer, worshipping the Lord and have made decisions which have brought you great sadness and you can see bringing them great harm. There are, great, there are many disappointments in life, aren't there? What is this psalm with its exuberance and its praise of God in this bumper harvest year? How does this psalm speak to us in the ordinary affairs and days of our lives? It seems that this psalm and the reason why David is giving the praise is that the psalm recognises that praise is due to God not just for a bounteous crop, not just when things are going well, but is built on two other foundations which I want to trace for us today because it seems to me the big challenge for us as Christians is to be hanging in there when things don't go well, as the lady who prayed for us, when our prayers don't seem to be answered. That's the big challenge for us as believers, isn't it? In other words, do we trust God for who he is or for what he gives to us? And whilst it's right for us to be trusting God and giving him praise for the things he gives to us, whether it be our families, the joys of life, whether it be harvests, graduations for all those, those things which we rightly work for. But what about when they don't seem to be going so well? Are we able to praise God for who he is, what he's done for us in terms of bringing us into relationship with himself through the Lord Jesus? Let me take you to, to verses 1 to 4. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. And then he gives us three reasons why we can praise the God of Zion, the God of Israel. Firstly, God is the hearer of prayer. It's a wonderful little phrase, isn't it? You who are the hearer of prayer. We take that for granted as Christians, that God doesn't have to hear our prayers, but he does. And we know that as Christians we can come with confidence. We don't have to wake him up. We don't have to 
sort of flagellate ourselves. We come because of the Lord Jesus. God is the hearer of prayer for all who will come to him. It is, a, it is a rare privilege that we have as believers. Just a few psalms before, Psalm 55 and verse 22 is the wonderful, wonderful promise. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. You know how Peter takes it up in 1 Peter 5. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. That's the universal or the message of the Bible to believers, that we can come to the living God, whether it's thanksgiving for bumper harvest or whether we cry out, Lord, why is this happening? I don't understand it. But we can come to him with broken hearts and those that he will hear us because he is the God who hears prayer. He is the forgiver of sins, verse 3. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. What a magnificent, magnificent truth that is. We come as penitent sinners. All may come, but we must come penitent. We must come clean before the living God. David knew that personally, didn't he? Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 I mean, adultery, deceit, murder, overwhelmed by his sins, but he came clean. God in his mercy forgave him. And I wonder why he writes it here. We, we don't really know the context in this psalm, but I wonder, had there been a particular sin of Israel at this particular time that David's alluding to? Was it the bumper harvest that they enjoyed this particular year, but perhaps they'd had famines in years before because of some particular sin that God was punishing them for. I'm a great fan of Bishop Ryle. Do you all know about Bishop Ryle? First Bishop of Liverpool, one of the great bishops of the Church of England. And he wrote a little tract called When There Had Been a Foot and Mouth Disease in Your Country in the 19th Century called The Finger of God. Asking the nation, was there something that God was trying to get your attention for? Now, it may well have been that there had been famine in the land. And when God had sent the plenty, the psalmist is not only rejoicing in the bounty, but he's rejoicing that God brought repentance and forgiveness to the people. As I mentioned, we're undergoing this awful drought at the moment. It's been very interesting for Christine and I as we go to parishes, most of them rural parishes, totally dependent upon, um, upon crops and sheep and cattle primarily. Where I can remember at Glen Innes about three years ago, as Christine was talking to a farmer, we were talking about it when we were coming home, she said, you know, it was just extraordinary chatting to two or three couples who were all farmers. And one of them said, you know, this drought has been good for us. And Christine said, why? What do you mean? She said, well, we've had bumper harvests and we've tended to neglect and forget the living God. This is bringing us to our knees, back to him. That same year I was at a men's convention We'd had Richard Coyken from Wimbledon Parish actually come and speak at Katoomba. And uh, I usually take 
a house party of men from our smaller parishes, and there were about 50 or 60 of men there this year, and we were just sort of going through the talks that we'd had during the day and how that had touched us. And talk came around to the drought and how difficult it had been for some of the farmers to make ends meet, especially those with teenagers, helping them to understand God's goodness in all of this. And two of the farmers, both fellows in their middle 50s, one man from a place called Corinda in the south of our diocese said, I'd lost a crop of $140,000, £60,000. But he said, you know, it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me because we had forgotten God and now we're back worshipping and honouring him. And another man, a big man, a harvesting contractor called Alan Every, one of our keen Christian laymen in the diocese, he shared that he'd lost a similar amount of money and how it had brought he and Libby, his wife, back to the Lord in a much more renewed way. They were saying we had presumed upon God's goodness during the years of plenty. Perhaps it was that kind of sin that he was talking about. But whatever it is, he affirms the fact that God is the God who forgives sins. There's no greater truth than that, is there? Or perhaps there is. The next verse. He says, Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house. You know, not only does God hear prayer and forgive our sins, but when we come to him and put our trust in the Lord Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't just forgive us, but he welcomes us. The New Testament truth, of course, is justification by faith, which is greater than forgiveness because it means welcome into God's presence. And here the psalmist rejoices in the relationship that he has with him. That's like entering into the Father's house and enjoying all the good things. And, of course, as believers, uh, we have the down payment, don't we, the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us to guarantee all the things to come. Friends, whether there's a bumper harvest going on in your life or whether there's drought, whether there's success or all the kinds of things you'd hoped for in your life have come to fruition or whether there have been disappointments and failures along the way, let me remind you that if you know the Lord, the one who hears your prayer, the one who's forgiven your sins, the one who's welcomed you into his house, so to speak, as a son and a daughter, then nothing can rob you of that neither poverty nor riches. And as I look at you, as I've walked around a few of your streets, I see that you're a fairly well-to-do place, just as we are where I live in Armidale. And one of the biggest dangers, of course, for us who live in well-to-do parts of the world is the great danger, isn't it, of forgetting God because of our very prosperity. In fact, as a friend of mine who's an older man than I and who's pastored for many, many years, I can remember him saying to me, Peter, there are, there are more people not sitting in this congregation today because of riches than because of poverty. And this psalm will help us to see that though it's right to thank God and praise God when prosperity comes, we'd be wretches if we didn't. There's a I mean, the very creation does it, so we ought to do it. But this psalm would remind us by these earlier verses 
that there's a much more fundamental reason to praise God. And that is that he's the God who hears prayer, forgives sins, and welcomes people to become his sons and daughters. But the next few verses remind us, as the, as the New Testament does, that our confidence in God for the future is always found in the past, in what he's done for us. So you see that in, for example, verses 5 and 8, you answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Saviour, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. But we look to the creation and see that God is an awesome creator. But he's also a great saviour who has intervened on behalf of his people. And verse 7, I think, is a reminder to the people of Israel of the great Exodus event who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Remember, as the people crossed through on the dry land. That's exactly what God did for his people and then and the turmoil of the nations as he allowed the waters to go back over the Egyptians. That God is the great saviour, the God who has delivered us and of course for us as believers, we do not just look back to the Exodus. We still look to the creation and we stand in awe. We get lots of David Attenborough's documentaries in Australia and I often feel as when we're finished watching one of those but there will at least be, we all just stand and sing the doxology. <laughs> oh, how great thou art. And yet it just sort of washes over us, doesn't it? We sort of take it for granted. And yet we worship this God who is the great creator and sustainer of the universe. But we know that God, verse 5, is the God who has answered us with awesome deeds of righteousness. The hope of all the ends of the earth and that speaks to me of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who is our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, who came and lived brightly amongst us. What an awesome deed that was. But the one through whom the Father created the whole universe. As somebody has said, the one who causes the heavens to thunder should come and cry in his mother's arms. What an awesome deed of righteousness it was for the living God to send his son to take our frail form and dwell amongst us. And brothers and sisters, if that is not awesome enough for us, what about the truth that the one who came and left his father's throne and dwell amongst us should then go to hell upon the cross. Is that not awesome? An awesome deed of righteousness. That the righteous one should stand in our place and take our transgressions so that our transgressions could be taken by him and then he could give us, through faith, his righteousness. So we stand before him, not as sinners, but he treats us like his son clothed in his righteousness. I hope you dwell on that truth a lot. For when we do, we see the, not only the awesomeness of the living God, but the wonder of his love. Listen to how the Apostle Paul dwelt upon it. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I, li- I, I, I no longer live, but Christ 
lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Next time you're feeling melancholic or down or sad or beaten, contemplate for a moment on that righteous deed. The Son of God who gave himself willingly for you. The next time you get up in the morning you think, what's the purpose of life? I've retired. I'm alone. What's the point of it all? The Son of God gave himself up for you. It's worth it, isn't it? It's worth getting up. It's worth marching forth. It's worth saying to the Lord, Lord, what have you got for me today to do? Who can I talk to? Who can I encourage today? And if those two awesome deeds are not enough, what about the awesomeness of the third day? Up from a grave he arose, triumphant over his foes on the third day. Do you see the way the psalmist moves? What is your confidence for tomorrow? Well, your confidence tomorrow is what Jesus did for you yesterday. That's the confidence for tomorrow because none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. But we do know that if we have prayed to the Lord for forgiveness, that we have become his child, his son, his daughter, and he will sustain us in his hand. And whether there are crops or whether there are no crops, whether there's success or whether there's failure, whether our dreams have all come off or they've all been shattered, nobody's going to take you from the Father's hand. Nobody's going to rob you of the forgiveness that you have through Christ. We can stand, we can be confident. So friends, our praise, our hope, our confidence is not based upon all going well for us or even upon the choice gifts that God should shower upon us, whether it be harvest or health or fellowship or even family, but on God himself and on the relationship we have with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So important because I don't have to tell you trouble will come, won't it? It probably has come for most of us in one way or another. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion? He says, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you might have trouble. No, no. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's for Saviour. That's for God that we know. I sometimes think that the way to go for a preacher, this is certainly the way I'd like to go, is when I'm 90, if somebody (laughs) invites me to ever preach when I'm 90, I'd like to have preached, had something to eat and sit in my chair and just, just go. But there's every chance I'll be incontinent in a nursing home and my wife will have died and my kids will be a long way, scattered, distant from me. 
And I often wonder, how will I handle that? How will I handle it? And I would like to think that as I keep on focusing upon God who has made me and on the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved me, that he will sustain me through disappointment and sadness and loneliness. We see the crops and we praise God. It would be wrong for us not to do that. The crops don't come. Well, like Habakkuk, I will wait patiently for the Lord. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go up on the heights. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is able. Is your trust in him? As if it is, he saved you and he'll save you to the end. That's his purpose. His purpose is not to gratify you, but it's to grow you. It's to make you see and understand how good he is. So live faithfully under God, but not as God. Under God meaning that you'll cry out to him for help and you'll give him the praise. Cherish and nurture the relationship that he has given to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that be your heartbeat. Let that be what sustains you. Always be confident. Yes, praising him quietly, as is suggested in verse 1, praise awaits for you, O God, in Zion. Praising him exuberantly when the occasion demands it, but always confidently, knowing that the Saviour died for you and through him you have become the Father's children and knowing that daily as you prove his faithfulness, whether it's in the good times or in the tough times, that that certainty in your heart, born out of what he did for you upon the cross and born out of your daily experience that he is faithful, that that will give you confidence to the end. For God who hears your prayer, for God who forgives your sin and the God who has already welcomed you as his son and daughter. Brothers and sisters, let that sustain you. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you that you give to us these psalms. We thank you that we can enter into the experience of others before us. Fill our hearts with praise for the provision of our daily needs, for the provision of so many other needs. Fill our hearts with confidence in you as our gracious God, our Saviour, the one who has forgiven us, the one who has welcomed us as your children. 
Help us, we pray, to be sustained by that relationship and help us to be those who minister that hope and that confidence to others. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.